I don't think this day can make up its mind if it wants to be rainy, dark, cloudy, sunshiny, whatever. But uh, glad to see you all back out this evening. Tonight, I'm going to look at, I will eventually get to a passage in Jeremiah. And uh, I'm not really preaching a series of lessons from Jeremiah, but I am using different texts, different passages, and I'm going to be doing that throughout the year. So a lot of the sermons will sound, they'll probably sound like they're all over the place, but they'll all have one major related theme, and that is just very simply how God's people depart from Him, and all with the idea of we should be holy, etc. I'd like for you to be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and I want to use some, uh, a couple of passages here in the New Testament that Jesus, uh, some things Jesus said on the last public day, I guess, of his ministry, and then we'll go back to the Old Testament and relate it to some things there. It has been said often and in various ways, and I'll choose to quote it this way, unless we study or become students of history, we're doomed to repeat it. I love history. I love studying history, different civilizations, different things that happen at, at different times. I love ancient history. One of the things that I've always been impressed with is that time may go on, technology may change, etc. People don't. You can pick up something and read from 2,000, 4,000 years ago, obviously a translation, but you can read a description of everyday life and it will sound as though you just walked down the local neighborhood or you were, you were in the workplace beside someone yesterday. People are generally the same. And one of the things that you're stricken with as you look at the, the Bible is that God is constantly bringing up the history and history of sometimes other people and comparing that to what's currently being done or what's currently happening in, say, the nation of Israel or the church or whatever it might be and warning us that, you know, the, the end of the story is the same. You do this, you live like this, you feel like this, you practice this, etc. The end of the story is always going to be the same. In Matthew chapter 21... And the title of this lesson, you may notice if you picked up an outline, is Like Israel, Like Judah. Or in the introduction, I have probably one of the shortest introductions of my preaching career. I said, or as went Israel, so went Judah. I'll get into more of that in just a moment. But suffice it to say that on this last public day, Jesus was in a discussion, debate, argument, etc. with the Jews in the temple. And they're challenging his authority, and basically what he ends up saying is, well, what about John, John the Baptist, of course, he's talking about, what about John? Where did his authority come from? Well, they kind of debated it among themselves, and they said, if we say this, then he'll say that, and if we say this, this will be the happen. So when they come back, is this great answer, and they said, we can't tell. And Jesus said, all right, then I don't tell you. But then Jesus went on to back that up in verse 28, if you'll notice, but he's basically addressing all the people, and he says, but... Having said that, you know, what do you think? And so he challenges their thinking. Now notice this parable, if you'll read with me in Matthew chapter 21, and let's read verses 28 and following to start with. It's often called the parable of the two sons. What do you think? A certain man had two sons. He came to the first one and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. The son answered him and said, I will not. But afterward he repented. And he went. Then he came to the second son, and he said, Son, likewise, go work in my vineyard. And the second son said, 
I will. I go, sir. And he didn't go. So Jesus said, which of the two do you think did the will of his father? So you have two sons. Neither one of them respond perfectly, do they? The first son, you know, he comes back with, I ain't going. That would be me. Okay? And, you know, then you get beat up a little bit and all of that. Not not seriously. But, uh, you know, you repent. And you change and you go do what you're supposed to do. The second son is just a liar. Oh, sure, Dad. I'll do it. And he lies, and there's no repentance on his part. He never goes. So they, they look at that, and they go, oh, well, of course, the one that repented. Jesus said, that's right. And so if you notice in verse 31, then I say unto you that the publicans, the tax collectors, and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. One of the things that impresses me, and I was thinking about it this morning, whatever happened on April 19th that Wes was talking about, can rest assured that it was a serious situation involving serious sin. I've told you many times about serious sins in my past. But you know, it doesn't make us different or special or anything else. David had serious sins. But when around this room, I think a number of you would say, yeah, that's me too. It's, it's been something you've recognized from the very beginning that the church in many respects, is filled with people who really, really, really messed up. But they're good-hearted people. And they have a conscience. And they're not the obstinate, rebellious, lying, two-faced son that says, Sure, Dad, I'll go. And then they never do. No, they're the one that, you know, maybe even rebelliously, adamantly, stands up to the Father in total disrespect, or to God, and says, I'm not doing what you want me to do. And they feel it. They have the conscience. They are, as Wes quoted this morning in Psalm 51, they are broken, they are crushed, and they come to God. Jesus tells the story. And then Jesus went on to make it more personal in verse 33. He said, listen to another parable. There was a certain householder, and that would be God. There was a certain householder, and he planted a vineyard, and he hedged it round about. That means he protected it, etc. He digged the wine press in it. He built the tower, and he let it out, or rented it out, as it were. Still belonged to him, but he entrusted the care of it to various vine dressers, some of your translations say, or husbandmen, or gardeners. And he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit, or the harvest, drew near... He sent his servants, most people, and I'm one of them, tend to think he speaks of the prophets here. He sent his servants, though, to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, just piling them up, as it were, that's the way I think of it, more than the first, and they did the same thing. And so last of all, he sent unto them his son. Now that would be Jesus standing there, who's just concluding three and a half years of going before these people and preaching. So he sent his son, and what God the Father said is, they will reverence my son. If they won't respect the prophets up to John the Baptist, they'll respect my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. He's come to take what belongs to him, and we want it. 
Come, let us kill him, and let us seize his inheritance. And they caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and they slew him. I think Jesus knows a few days from now, I believe this is Tuesday of the crucifixion week, and on Friday they're going to seize him and crucify him. And they're going to beat him up pretty bad the night before, and the Romans are going to do it all night long into that morning, and he's going to be beaten up pretty bad and and crucified. And I think Jesus knows that when he says what he says here. But he tells this story. And then he asks them, When the Lord, therefore, of of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbands? Well, they're kind of like David, you know. Well, I got to die, you know. And so they said, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto somebody else who will render him the fruits. And basically what they're saying is, they'll miser- he, that owner will miserably destroy those guys he's in, he entrusted it to and give it to somebody else to bring him his rightful inheritance. And then Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. Is that marvelous in your eyes? Are you amazed that that will happen? So I say to you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And that, of course, is the Lord's church. When we go back into the Old Testament, we understand what Jesus was doing here as he's concluding the Old Testament and all those servants and all those prophets. He's pointing out the responsibility of a son to a father. The responsibility to fulfill your duties. He's pointing out the fact that typically you have some that rebel. I'm just not doing it. And then they have a, a, you know, a crisis of conscience, and they realize, no, it's my responsibility, and so afterward they repent, and they do what they're supposed to do. But then you have others that just lie. You know, yeah, sure, I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, and they skate through life like that. And they may even tell you of the good things they do, and how you know, they are a good person, and they do this, and they do that, and, and some of that may even be true. But the truth is, they are not doing the will of the Father. And Jesus says, who really is doing the will of the Father? The one that is the rebel, you know, the the disrespectful son that says, I'm not going, but who repents and really serves God. The Davids of this world, if you will. Or the one who just lies about it and claims that he's doing what's right and never does what he's supposed to do. They know the answer to that. And then he tells this other parable and he says, that's you, man. That's you people. The history of us, Jesus is saying, is that God gave us this land. And God meant for us to be the respectful, at least the penitent son, and do what we're supposed to do. And the truth is, what you had is people who have not done that, and any time God sent someone to them and said, you need to be doing this, then they beat them up, they killed them, they treated them horribly. And so people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of these prophets come to mind, and in chapter 23, Jesus will go on to say that in no uncertain terms. Which of the prophets ever came? And you didn't treat them that way. So we get to thinking about that and we go back to the Old Testament and we realize 
that there are a number of passages that Jesus is speaking of, I mean, even though he's not quoting them. So I want to read a couple, just together with me, read these passages. Let's go back to Isaiah, for example. And, I'm, you know, we could read all night long in Isaiah, and, uh, and I'm not going to do that. But I do want to select a couple of passages here and there to read. And one of them is in Isaiah 1. And I, and I want to set up the context without getting carried away with the history. But remember, Isaiah is writing at a time when Israel, the northern kingdom, is about to be destroyed. God is going to have the Assyrians come and just wipe them out and take the people into foreign countries, and they're never coming back. But Isaiah, if you'll read beginning in verse 1, isn't writing to them as much as he's writing to supposedly God's faithful people. So listen to the tone of this beginning in verse 1. This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So maybe even as early as 50 years before the Assyrians take the northern kingdom away. Now notice verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. There's your sons of Jesus' parable. And they have rebelled against me. The ox doesn't know his owner. The, the ass or the donkey, his master's crib, where he feeds, where he gets all of the blessings of life. But Israel does not know. My people does not consider. Then he goes in verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And, and he says, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. Do you see what he's talking about there? Just generations plural. Of people that are inundated with sin. We look around us, a lot of us, and we talk about the current generation. And it's not so much that we're just down. You know, we're not just, you know, crusty old people being down on young people. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for young people. A lot of good in young people. But at the same time, we're looking at them and we're seeing where they are spiritually, where they are, you know, socially as a society. And what we're saying is, yeah, but look at the generation that went before. And then we start talking about that, and we talk, we talk about the children of today or the young people of today, and we see where they are, and then we start saying, man, what will the next generation be? If things don't turn around, what about the next generation? Would it be apt to say from verse 4 here that a seed of evildoers, that is, people who are the product of sinful people, will in turn breed corrupt? Just absolutely corrupt, with no sense of right and wrong. That's possible. I'm not saying that's going to happen, because I think there are a lot of things that can change that. But given its present course, that's exactly what can happen. And God says, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. We might say it to like this today, they are completely turned around. Their thinking is all twisted. They are completely gone away backward. Notice verse 5. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole uh, head is sick, he says, and the whole heart faint. And yet, 
Isaiah is writing this, and if you'll notice later in this chapter, and I'd like for you to drop down with me to about verse 16, at this point, as you read the book of Isaiah, you realize it's over for the northern kingdom. There just isn't any hope for them. Israel. But Judah, you still have time. Now notice what God says down in verse 16. And I liken this to a corrupt land, a land that you can look around, that good godly people can look around and can see what's going on and realize no deep down inside, even if you won't admit it, that things are not right. Maybe even a church that's like that. Certainly an individual that's like that. I'm doing all these things and I will fight you and defend what I'm doing, but deep down inside, just between God and me, I know this ain't right. And so God would say to us in verse 16, Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Stop doing what's wrong. Learn to do well. You know, it's a process there. You've got to make a decision to quit the wrong before you can ever learn to do right. Learn to do well. Seek judgment, he says. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. I love verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. You know, God isn't saying, when I was studying with Dale, and I've told you this often, I would sit there and, and when I was totally against God and totally against the Bible, and I would say, all the Bible is is somebody trying to tell you what to do. And I just wasn't in that frame of mind to be told. I don't want to be told what to do. God doesn't do that. God says, let's reason. What's best? What's right? What really makes life good? Well, you know, you can go out there and you can sin and you can do all those things that you do. You can get like David or any of many of us that are in this room and you can get carried away in sin and you can compound sin until it all comes crashing down. Till you make a miserable mess out of your life. You can do that. But in the end, what are you going to come to? What reasoning are you going to come to if not to say... God was right. God's way was right. God, all God is saying is, let's just reason together. Let's think this thing through together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If. A person has something against them, like Wes was talking about this morning, like David went through, and it's killing them. The conscience of it the knowledge of the sin, I did this thing. It's killing them. They don't want to live with it. Some people don't. Some people, like Judas, choose to go out and kill themselves. Can't live with this. Don't want to live with this. God says, let's think this thing through. If you will be willing, verse 19, and obedient, if you will come to me and stop doing what's wrong and learn to do what's right, I will take the sin away. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to even obey the gospel. And, and, and please stay with me for a moment. You're going to confess the Lord and repent and be baptized, and you believe your sins will be washed away. That doesn't mean you're going to come away from there feeling like it's gone. 
Any more so than it means that once you are a Christian, if you do what the rebellious son did or what these people were doing or what David did, and as a child of God you sin and you stop doing the thing that's wrong and you start learning to do what's right and you ask for forgiveness, that the feeling of it is going to be gone immediately. Uh, Wes, correct me if I'm wrong, but I took that to be what you were saying one year later when you're still feeling all of that. Because that's human. That's what we go through. But notice what God says. If you're willing and you're obedient, you will eat the good of the land. Now that's a promise. What he is saying is it will get to the point where life gets really good. It takes time, but you'll get there. And life will be good, and I will bless you, and you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse, verse 20, and you rebel, you will be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that's powerful. And you read that, and sometimes you don't want to hear it, because you know you're out here, and you're doing what's wrong, and really deep down inside, you know you intend to keep on doing what's wrong. And you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that God will take his child and chastise his life, you know, and and chastise his life. He'll chastise the child and make a mess out of his life to say to that child, I will do what I say I will do. Until it's hopeless. Until there's no hope for you, I'll make your life miserable. But if you do what's right, God will bless you and God will be with you. Now that's what he's promising here. And there are so many passages like that. I wish that we had time tonight to read them, but there are so many passages like that. Read with me one other. And this is where God really was talking about the state of Israel. I want to go back to the book of Hosea. Bill read that passage in chapter 8 for us. But I want to go back to Hosea 1. Now this is, by all admission, as people study the Bible, I'm too far, this is one of the strangest things God ever did. I I mean, honestly. And I'm not saying that I understand all of this. I've tried to study this for I don't know how many years now, and I'm not saying I understand all of it, but I'll take it for what it says. Let's read it. It's an interesting thing if, if you are not familiar with it, and I know most of you are. Beginning in Hosea 1, verse 1, he says, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. So we're talking about the same time again, all that more prophets that are being piled up. In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, I want you to go take a wife of the whoredoms and children of whoredoms. Basically, I want you to go marry one of the dirtiest prostitutes you can find. That's what I want you to do. For the land has committed great whoredom in departing from the Lord. So he did. He obeyed God and he went and took Gomer, or Gomer, uh, as, as most of us pronounce it, like Gomer Pyle there. But he went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Diblaim, who conceived and bore him a son. And then this is what God said. I want you to name this child Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. I want you to have a little reminder running around of what I'm going to do when I take vengeance. Horrible. Marry a prostitute, have a kid, name him something like this, but it's not over. It'll come to pass at that, that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again, verse 6. 
And she bore a daughter this time. And God said unto him, this is what I want you to call her, Loruhama. Again, Jewish. But what it means is, notice, for I will not, I will not any more have mercy on the house of Israel. So now you've got a reminder of vengeance coming. And now you've got a brand newborn, little baby, little baby girl who's going to remind you God is not going to be... He's a merciful God, but not to you. No mercy. So little no mercy is running around. Because I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, verse 7, and I'll save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow or by sword, nor by battle, horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lorama, a couple of years go by again, She conceives and bears a third child, again a son. And then said God, call his name Loami. Well, what does that mean? You are not my people. Now, can you imagine, you are called by God. We get called by God to do some tough things in life, don't we? But you're called by God. You're starting your life. And I know we have young people here and they're starting their life and all of that kind of thing. You're starting your life and God says, what I want you to do is I want you to go marry a whore. And then I want you to have children. You're going to have three children. You're going to have one little reminder that God is taking vengeance. You're going to have a second little reminder that God has no mercy on you anymore. And you're going to have a third little reminder that says, I've rejected you. You're not my people. It's awful. And so the number of the children of Israel, verse 10, shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, that it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. Now he speaks of hope, even in the midst of all of this. Then shall the children of Judah, again, you're looking at this. You're looking at your relatives to the north. And the children of Israel will one day be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. And you have to understand Why this is happening to Israel like this is because they rejected the descendant of of David. And there will come a day when they will reunite. That day will be the day of Pentecost. And they will once again have one king and his name will be Jesus. But at this time, how horrible that is. Hosea, I call you. I want you to be a preacher. I want you to go out here and preach to the people. But I don't want you to tell them that things are going to be great if you'll just do this and this. You're not Isaiah. Hosea? Isaiah's message is, that's bad. But his message was to a group of people where he was saying, look, let's reason together. If you change your life, I'll bless you. No, your message, Hosea, is to go tell them, I am sick of you, disgusted with you, and you're going to have a family that every time somebody looks at your family and shakes their head and says, why would that guy marry her? And why in a Sam Hill would he ever name his kids that? Every time they look at you, they are going to have to silently look inside if there's anything left and say, that's me. That's what God means. That's me. The message of Hosea, like Bill read for us, that's me. That's us. I did this. Remember when Wes was talking this morning, I thought it was a great lesson to go with this one. Because it is David looking out there at the defeat of the army, looking out there at murdered soldiers, killed soldiers, families that are suffering, and that's on me. And that's what the message of Hosea is. We look at this 
And what God is saying is learn from it. He was saying that in Jesus' day. Jesus was saying it to those people, learn from it. Don't repeat it. And yet, how often do we repeat it? How often do we in our own lives, knowing the history, knowing these people, how many times have you caught yourself perhaps shaking your head and saying, how could those people do that? Or I'll go one better. How many times have I caught myself looking across the aisle at some member or where some member used to be who's now off in sin somewhere and shaking my head and saying, how could that person do that? And then it ends up being me. And I'm looking in a mirror saying, how could you do that? We have to be people that study it, that read it, that listen to it, and we have to be people that learn from it. We can't just be people who are willing to go on repeating the same mistakes of our own life or of other people's lives and think somehow the outcome will be any different. Like Israel, like Judah. There are some passages, and I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 3, and that's where I chose to go to. But there are passages like Jeremiah 3, or I encourage you to go home. I'm not going to read it for sake of time tonight, but like Ezekiel 16, where God basically just comes to His people. And like we, we might be disposed to say to someone, if we had a really, really close relationship to someone, and they sin, and that sin affects me, it hurts me, and I feel it. We're disposed to say to someone, how could you do that to me? And sometimes we're even disposed to say, you know, I did all of this for you. I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and how could you do that to me? How could you throw that back in my face or whatever and do that to me? Well, God is saying that in passages like this. And I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but I would like for you to look at, with me at Jeremiah chapter 3, and let me just go down to about verse 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? I find that to be an extremely interesting question for God to come to a human being and ask. Have you seen what they've done? Now notice as God goes on here. And you can just hear the pain in his voice. You know, God is grieved at our sins. He still is today. The Holy Spirit is grieved over our sins. Ephesians 4 verse 30. Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? That they've gone upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there they've played the harlot. He speaks of all the idolatry. In other words, they threw him away for something infinitely less in some false god. And I, I said, after she had done all these things, God is saying, Turn thou unto me, as if to say, Repent. But she didn't return. And her treacherous sister Judah, Jeremiah, your people, her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Have you seen what Israel... You can almost hear a prophet going out and say, repeating God. God came to me and said, have you seen what Israel has done? You can almost hear these self-righteous people going, yeah, can you believe that? Can you believe what Israel has done? You know, it served them right for Assyria to come take them into captivity. You ever felt like that? 
You ever been watching TV and watch some nation whom we consider to be an enemy or hear of something that happens to someone that's evil and you know it and they get bombed or they get killed or they get burned and saying, yeah, they deserved it. Can you believe what those people do? Well, they would have done that. And then God comes back and says, yeah, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. In verse 8, I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. Because this is after a time Assyria comes and takes them into captivity. I put her away and gave her a bill of divorcement. And yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. You know, to me, and, and this, is, this is what I say to myself. Michael, if you can look at someone else and ever pridefully have a thought like, boy, that person in that sin, how could that person do that thing? You need to train yourself to catch yourself. Like, wait a minute. You know, what have you done? Have you done the same kind of thing? Because what happens is, if you're looking at someone else and you're disposed to say, man, look what that person did, and then you see punishment come to them. Some disaster hits them in life and you say, yeah, that's what happens to people like that. Well, what about me? What, what happens when I'm a people like that? Does God come to me and punish me? And that's the message he's sending Jeremiah with. It came to pass, notice verse 9, through the lightness of her whoredom. See, she's out there doing, Judah's out there doing the same thing, and it's no big deal, we would say. I mean, just get over it. It's not a big thing. It's not, you know, not some big, huge thing you want to blow it into. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks, the various idols. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but feignedly. In other words, hypocritically. It's like the person who acts like it really bothers them that they've sinned. And then goes right out and sins. You may never have seen that. I have. I've seen a person go up before a congregation and literally cry. Tears roll down their face talking about the sins they committed. And I've seen that same person walk by me as soon as they left that confession and smile behind everybody's back and say, Don't you believe it? Now, I've seen that. That's Judah. There's no repentance here. It's hypocritically done. And the Lord said unto me, Jeremiah said in verse 11, The Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. And I'll tell you why I think he says this. I might be wrong. If you disagree, that's fine. I think the reason God is saying that Israel is more justified than Judah is because Judah has more advantages. You see, Israel, by the time they're taken away into captivity, they're 200 years removed from Jeroboam's rebellion. They're not down there where the temple is. And they're not down there where godly people are. And they don't have a godly king every three or four to kind of lead them back. They've gone 200 years into complete idolatry. They don't have the advantages. 
It's like a person who grows up in a decadent society without all of the advantages of society, etc., and they end up doing the same things. It's terrible. But that's not anywhere near as bad as the individual who grows up in relatively decent society, perhaps grows up, their parents, etc., are members of the church, and on and on it goes. Or they had advantages. And then says, hey, it's no big deal. Do what you want to do. You know, you only live once anyway. No, there's no, there's no justification for that. God would be saying to these people, you had every advantage, just like Paul does say in Romans 2, you had every advantage and you just totally disregard it. The spiritual adultery of God's people, you know, and, and I won't read it for sake of time, but Ezekiel 16, here God comes along and says, you know what you were? You were like a poor child that didn't have anybody. And you were just out there and everybody passed by and nobody cared, but I did. And I, I took you and I cleaned you up and I dressed you up and I adorned you and I made you everything. He's speaking of his people, of course. And then what you did, and, and I even married you when you were grown, is the point. And then once you were my wife, once I had done all of that for you, you went out here behind my back, not really, but thinking you were, and you committed adultery with everybody around. I mean, it was just like constant filth. And God's reaction to all of that is, you broke my heart. You read Ezekiel 16. It's not, I hate your guts. It's not, I'm going to kill you for what you did. You broke my heart. And then God says, but I love you. And I want you to change. And I want to save you. And then God says what we almost believe as human beings we can't say. I believe in you. I believe that I can love you enough and you will change. Now that's God. And we thank, we are thankful that we have such a God. That even if we have repeated the sins of others, that if we want to turn it around, God will love us and we can turn it around. Let me read just a closing statement. I don't often read something I write down in the outline, but I'm going to tonight because I'd like to, conclu to conclude with exactly what I said. Spiritual adultery generally begins small, as does physical adultery. And many times it ends in spiritual divorce between God and His people. People see the ill effects of adultery, of that kind of behavior. But they tend to repeat the same mistakes others have made from the very beginning. And that doesn't mean, I mean, it doesn't matter if we're talking about physical adultery or spiritual adultery. People tend to repeat the same mistakes. And likewise, equally so, people tend to criticize, be quick to judge, shake their head in disbelief that others could act like that, and then in one fashion or another, go out and do the exact same thing. That's people. God warned us in Hebrews 3, Beware, lest there be in any of you unbelief, the deceitfulness of sin. 
Beware, lest you harden your heart in unbelief. Like Israel, like Judah, hopefully with God's help, not like us. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, if you believe in Jesus, that He is the Son of God, if you believe in the love of God to help you no matter what you've done or where you've come from, if you're willing to confess your belief, if tonight you're willing to repent, you'll stop doing what's wrong, you will learn to do what's right, and if that takes you the rest of your life, that will be what you do. God will wash your sins away. You can be baptized. God will wash your sins away. You will be as white as snow. If you're here and you're a child of God, and you rebelled against God, come back to it. Because even if it's reached what Ezekiel 16, his people did, he will still tell you, I love you, I believe in you, I want you back. Won't you please come? I'll stand.